Father, as we are gathered today into Your presence, as we come together to break bread and renew covenant with You, may we do so with unity, sincerity, and gladness of heart. May that joy unspeakable and the peace that passes understanding be with us today by the working of Your Holy Spirit. May we know the grace of forgiveness. May we be assured of Your fatherly love. May we worship You without distraction because we have cast all our cares upon You knowing that You care for us. May we hear Your Word with obedient faith. May our hearts leap with happiness as we sing Your praises. And as we come to Your table, may we cleanse out the old leaven of malice and evil so that we can celebrate the feast with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. During this Lenten season, may we remember Christ's passion, His suffering and death on our behalf. May we trust in Christ knowing that His work is our rest. His death is our life. His pain, our joy. His condemnation, our acquittal. And so help us with one voice, one faith, one mind and one heart as one body giving You thanks and praise, O Eternal Father, with Your Son and the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, forever and ever. Amen. The lesson of the day comes from 3 John. Listen carefully to God's Word. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who wants to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, every one of them, by name. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and your promise uh, to bless the preaching of your word uh, with the work of your spirit. We pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen.
Here's a pop quiz for you. Bible knowledge pop quiz. Why did God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Pop quiz. I'm going to pass out sheets of paper, have everybody fill it out, and then we'll grade them. Why did God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? I'll give you multiple choice, okay? So it's not just free response. Here's, here's a couple multiple choices. Was it A, they generated too much greenhouse gas? Was it B, there were too many people texting and driving? Was it C, they were engaged in all manner of sexual immorality? Or was it D, they were inhospitable? If you were paying close attention uh, to our lesson from Ezekiel this morning, you know that it's actually C and D. We know from Genesis 19 that there was all manner of sexual perversion and immorality going on in the city, cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's usually all we think about. That's usually all we focus on. And we feel pretty um, comfortable saying that Sodom and Gomorrah got what they deserved. But we're less familiar with what the prophets tell us about Sodom and Gomorrah's sin. Not to minimize uh, their other sins, but in Ezekiel 16, the prophet explicitly says that Judah has become worse than Samaria and also even worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. And what was Sodom's sin? Ezekiel tells us. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters, the other cities, the people who lived in the cities, she and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and committed an abomination, and so I removed them when I saw it. At first glance, these two types of sin don't seem to have all that much in common. So it seems maybe coincidental that uh, the Sodomites, right? There's a reason that Sodomite is associated with the city of Sodom, one who commits homosexual acts, right? We don't often think of inhospitality, failure to help the poor and needy as having anything to do with sexual sin and perversion. But actually, they're very closely related. Sexual perversion is the fruit that grows up from the root of pride and self-centeredness. Pride and arrogance, which is what Ezekiel indicts Sodom and Gomorrah for, pride and arrogance consists of thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. And thus, we attempt not only to overthrow God's authority, but it, tend, it causes us to think less of other people, to try to reduce other people so that we can be more uh, important than them. Refusing to acknowledge our own dependence on God, we end up worshiping ourselves. 
And when we refuse to recognize other people as fellow creatures who bear the image of God and were created for glory, we will have no reason to show hospitality or compassion toward those in need. You see, if we treat other people as objects that exist only to fulfill our own pleasures and desires, we will inevitably descend into all manner of sexual perversion and wickedness. If we allowed pride and arrogance to fester in our hearts, it will destroy us at the same time that it causes us to neglect and eventually destroy others around us. So you see, Ezekiel's condemnation of Sodom's pride and arrogance and refusal to help the poor and needy is uh, is in total harmony uh, and, and actually gives us insight into what caused them uh, to fall into the sexual sins that they're so well known for. And this is why the Apostle John brings so much attention to the sin of a man named Diotrephes in his letter, 3 John. Diotrephes was not just rough around the edges. He was not just hard to get along with. He actually refused to submit to the authority of the apostles. He refused to welcome missionaries sent out by John. He was intent on slandering and spreading all kind of evil uh, gossip about the apostles and the missionaries that they sent. And he not only refused to welcome them in or show them any sort of hospitality, but he even tried to kick out of the church the people who wanted to help them. So last a couple weeks ago, we looked at the example of Gaius and his hospitality. Diotrephes is in stark contra- contradiction to the hospitality of Gaius. And John actually makes up a Greek word here and says that Diotrephes loves to be first. The one who loves to be first. You won't find that word anywhere else in the Bible or even uh, other Greek literature. This must have been uh, some serious pride, some serious selfishness. He loved to be first. Diotrephes, the name Gaius was a very common name in uh, the ancient world, and so we're not really sure who this man Gaius was. There are other men named Gaius mentioned in the book in the New Testament, uh, so it's hard to know exactly who he was. Diotrephes, on the other hand, was a very, very rare name, a very uncommon name, and it it actually means the word itself means someone who was reared by Zeus, the chief of the Greek pantheon. So some some scholars have have guessed that Diotrephes was probably from a prestigious Greek family. Uh, And he was asserting his superior social status to gain control uh, in the church. And so, if that's the case, based on the context of John's other letters, it could be uh, that Gaius was support, or that Diotrephes was supporting false teachers that John warns about, 
uh, and welcoming them, them into the church. Or it could just be that Diotrephes was so intent on establishing and, and uh, promoting his own uh, social status uh, that he was intent on uh, having control even if it meant splitting the church and destroying the church. He was not about to submit to the apostles or anyone that they sent. Whatever the case, whatever uh, the background is, it's clear that pride and selfishness are not only the great enemies of the Gospel, but they are great enemies of hospitality. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says that pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. It's a spiritual cancer because pride makes us unable to receive God's hospitality. We, we, if we are filled with pride and arrogance, we can't receive God's grace. We can't receive His hospitality. But also, pride makes us unwilling to extend hospitality to others. That's why Peter says in multiple places that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So if pride is the enemy of hospitality, if pride is this is singled out by John as this great enemy of the Gospel, this enemy of hospitality, then it makes sense that humility is the key to hospitality. Humility is the key to hospitality. Because humility enables us to receive God's grace with open hands. In humility, we come before God with nothing to give Him, nothing to offer Him of our own um, efforts and merit. We come initially to receive God's grace with open hands as beggars with nothing but what He has given to us. And so when we are able to receive God's grace with open hands, then we are also able to extend that grace to others with open hands. In Romans 12, Paul gives us a pretty good definition of humility. He says, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. This is about how we think of ourselves in relation to other people. The Gospel requires that we get rid of the worldly way of thinking and we be transformed in our minds, not just um, ideas that we think, but how we think about ourselves in relation to God and how we think about ourselves in relation to other people in light of the Gospel, in light of God's grace. And interestingly enough, Paul goes on to give all these commands about how we're supposed to act toward one another, how we're supposed to act toward our brothers and sisters, how we're supposed to act towards our enemies, how we're supposed to work together to use our gifts in the body. So thinking of ourselves, thinking of others in light of the Gospel, enables us to put others before ourselves. But it also works the other way. Putting others before ourselves trains us to think of others in light of the Gospel. It's a which comes first. They, they both 
feed into one another. The reason humility and hospitality go together in so many ways is that acts of hospitality often remind us of our own dependence upon God's grace and His hospitality. Hospitality often stretches us beyond our own energy, beyond our own abilities, and calls us to rely on God's strength and provision. Hospitality confronts us with problems that are beyond our ability to fix and draw us into prayer. Hospitality exposes our own sin and presents us with an opportunity for repentance and sanctification. Surely, if you're like me, you've walked away from a conversation or um, spending time with someone uh, and you've thought, you've kicked yourself you know, for saying something uh, that you shouldn't have said or for talking too much or for you know, being rude or inconsiderate. Right? When you show hospitality or when you receive hospitality, when we rub souls with other people, It brings out our sin and we have an opportunity for repentance and sanctification. We learn to think of ourselves according to the Gospel and think of others in light of the Gospel. And hospitality to the marginalized and needy gives us an occasion to thank God for His many undeserved gifts to us. So extending hospitality requires humility, but it also trains us in humility. But receiving hospitality also requires humility and trains us in humility. If, if you're the one always hosting, if you're the one always serving others, sometimes it's difficult to let somebody else serve you, isn't it? But we need that discipline to teach us humility, to teach us, to remind us that we really are dependent on others. And when we put ourselves in a position of vulnerability, we're reminded that we're always dependent on God's provision, whether we feel like it or not, whether we recognize it or not. In fact, receiving hospitality, especially from someone who has less than us, reminds us that hospitality is not exclusively about those with much giving to those with little. In fact, it is often those who have the least that give the most. I can remember one time I was in college and going to do uh, some sort of campus uh, outreach project uh, with a group of college students And we were, each college student working on this uh, campus outreach project were uh, assigned to a host home from, I guess, a local congregation to stay with for a night while we did this uh, outreach project. And uh, we were picked up by our host. One of my friends and I were picked up by our host, and uh, we walked out to the parking lot and got in his uh, very... (laughs) beat up car and uh, drove a very long way to a trailer park and went into his home that was nothing to look at. It was uh, a very old, run-down trailer. 
uh, and his he was a younger guy, and his wife was there, and they had fixed us dinner, and uh, it was nothing special. And they you know showed us our our beds where we would sleep for the night, and it was not all that comfortable uh, or impressive. And um, I, we went on the project. We got back. Uh, we were talking with some of the other uh, people who had uh, who had gone on the trip and stayed with other families, and they were telling us about these people with these enormous houses with you know pools and hot tubs and and, and billiard tables and and you know home uh, movie theater systems and the lavish you know dinners that they enjoyed and all of these things, and I can remember feeling so. Uh, you know, jealous or envious or so disappointed, you know, at the at just this rundown um, place that we had, you know, had had to stay. Uh, and I, but I remember um, God just convicting me so uh, deeply for my ingratitude and for uh, thinking of myself, thinking that I deserve to stay in the house with all the nice stuff. You know, and, and looking down on this this couple who uh, who had given very generously of their limited resources to extend hospitality to a couple of you know uh, arrogant college students that they didn't even know, and just being so convicted by their by their generosity that they gave out of their uh, they gave out of their limitation they gave not out of their abundance but they gave out of their lack. And how that kind of hospitality, that kind of generosity, uh, can be so transformative and remind us that those who have least often give the most. And that when we give out of our lack, that's the kind of hospitality that's most honoring to God. It's like the, the widow who gave you know, two little pennies, but it was all she had. And she, Jesus says that she gave more than all the rest with their uh, enormous uh, wealth who just sort of gave out of their, out of their excess. And C.S. Lewis has this, has this amazing, very convicting quote in Your Christianity. He talks about our, our charity, our, our generosity. If, if our charity is out of our excess, uh, then... We're probably uh, we're probably not following the New Testament commands as we ought. But when our charity begins to squeeze in on our own lifestyle and on our own desires, when it starts to force us to rearrange our priorities, then we're much closer uh, to the kind of giving, the kind of generosity that Jesus calls us to. And this this pattern where um, you see this pattern throughout Scripture where the host receives as much, if not more, than they give. Oftentimes in Scripture, there are stories where someone offers hospitality out of maybe, sometimes it's out of their lack, sometimes it's not. It doesn't have to be always out of our out of our want or out of our need to be honoring to God. But any time in the Scriptures that somebody offers hospitality, they almost always receive more than they give. Consider Abraham in Genesis 18 with the three, uh, the three men who come to his, 
tent at the Oaks of Mamre. One of them turns out to be a pre-incarnate manifestation of, of the Son of God, and the other two appear to be angels. And when they show hospitality to these strangers, they receive the promise of a, of a son to a woman who was barren. Lot, in the very next chapter, shows hospitality to these same angels who later drag him to safety before God torches Sodom and Gomorrah. The widow of Zarephath uh, shows hospitality to Elijah in 1 Kings 17, but she has nothing to offer. The prophet is hungry, but she has very limited flour and oil. And But she offers it anyway. And what happens? Elijah prays and God blesses her with unending supplies of flour and oil. Same thing with the Shunammite woman. She was wealthy, unlike the widow who was poor, but she, ho- she shows hospitality to Elisha in 2 Kings 4. Elisha not only promise her, promises her the blessing of a son in her old age, But when her son later dies, Elisha brings her son back to life. This pattern is picked up and repeated in the life of Jesus. Jesus is the quintessential stranger in need of hospitality. He had no home. He had no worldly possessions to speak of. So he was always in need of hospitality. But he was also the quintessential host. He always was extending gracious hospitality and welcome. In fact, it's, if you read the Gospels, it's usually pretty hard to tell whether Jesus is the host or the guest in a particular situation. Think of the wedding at Cana. Jesus shows up as a guest at the wedding, and He ends up bringing and serving the best wine for the party to enjoy. A boy comes to Jesus and offers him five loaves and two fish. And Jesus takes what the boy has given to him, multiplies it, and then distributes it to the multitudes. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus show Jesus hospitality, preparing meals for him. He ends up raising Lazarus from the dead. In, In Luke 14, the passage we read earlier... Jesus is invited over to the house of a Pharisee and he ends up lecturing his, his host about how he should uh, throw his parties. Is Jesus the host or is he a guest? And then of course in Luke 24, uh, when Jesus is walking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, they invite him in to dine with them, not realizing who he is. And next thing you know, he's the one breaking bread and giving thanks and they recognize him and he disappears. Is Jesus the host? Or is he the guest? Or is he both? The point, I think, of this pattern, one thing that I think we can observe from this pattern, especially with Jesus and what the what Jesus says about welcoming the least of these and ministering to Jesus is that we can't expect to have Jesus as our host if we won't have Him 
as our guest. We can't expect to have Jesus as our host if we won't have Him as our guest. Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If we welcome in the least of these, we may very well find out that we welcome in Jesus and will receive a greater blessing than we could ever give. Let's face it, we, we, all need, we all need God's Word to transform us and train us in this type of hospitality. We don't offer hospitality and welcome to the extent that we ought. Nor do we show hospitality in the way that we ought or to the people that God's Word calls us to. We often think of ourselves more highly than others. And we let our pride too often blind us to the needs of others. And so, we may be tempted to despair. We may be tempted to uh, beating ourselves up and kicking ourselves uh, and, and, and trying to um, go end world hunger because we feel guilty uh, about not showing biblical hospitality. But another important aspect of humility is coming to terms with our own limitations. One aspect of humility is thinking of ourselves in light of the Gospel, thinking of others in light of the Gospel. But one part of that, one piece of that, that informs our hospitality is by recognizing and coming to terms with our own limitations. There are so many needs. There is so little time. There are so many people who need attention, who need a friend, who need help in some way. But we only have so much of ourselves that we can give before we're like that uh, little, too little butter spread on too much bread. One uh, writer who has made a life out of extending hospitality to the needy has this powerful reminder for us to keep in mind when we're tempted to think that it's up to us to save the world. She said, it's not a sin to be finite. It's not a sin to be finite, to have limitations, to be a creature and to be limited in what we are able to do ourselves. We are physical creatures who need rest and relaxation if we're going to be able to serve the way that God has called us to. Now, some of us tend to get a little too much rest and relaxation, maybe more than we need, but others of, of us uh, have become so busy and, and have this drive that we always have to be producing something, we always have to be doing something, we always have to be working on something or feeling like we're accomplishing something or we feel like we're less than spiritual. Somehow we've gotten the idea that it's unspiritual to take a nap when we're worn out or to do nothing for 30 minutes. Paul reminds us in Romans 12 that we are to pursue hospitality, that we are to seek out opportunities for hospitality, not to just sit around and let opportunities come to us. 
Paul reminds us, though, at the same time, right before he commands us to pursue hospitality, he reminds us that we're members of the body and that not every member of the body serves in the same way or has the same abilities or the same capacities. It's okay that during different seasons of life, we're able to serve other people in different ways. That's okay. We're part of the body. We are not the body in and of ourselves. We are members of the body. And the truth is that if we're going to pour ourselves out in service to others, if we're going to show the kind of hospitality that God's Word calls us to show, if we're going to give ourselves to others, we have to have something to give. If Jesus Himself needed to withdraw from the crowds for a time, to to be alone and to spend time in prayer, we certainly need to do so as well. In fact, many people who practice hospitality as a living and have written about hospitality write about uh, how they could not do what they do and keep up the kind of pace that they have without spiritual disciplines like solitude and silence to keep them from just completely burning out. If we're going to give of ourselves, we have to have something to give. But also, if we're going to make room in our lives for other people, we have to make room in our lives for other people. If our lives are a constant swirling, chaotic mess, it's going to be hard to have room in our lives in which to welcome other people. Now, that doesn't mean you have to have everything together and your house has to be spotless and uh, everything has to be perfect in order to show hospitality. But a disciplined lifestyle will enable us to show greater hospitality. This is one of the the paradoxes uh, of hospitality, that if we're going to be able to be spontaneous in showing hospitality, it helps to be disciplined in our lifestyle. So, keep a meal in the freezer so that you can uh, bring it to somebody uh, on the spur of the moment. Or keep, if you run across a lot of uh, people that are hungry uh, when you're driving around, keep some extra food in your car. Get some canned food and keep it in your car. If you plan ahead and and keep your guest room cleaned out, then you'll always be able uh, to welcome somebody in on the spur of the moment. If we train ourselves to live within our means, then we'll be able to share when a need arises and not be so strapped ourselves that we have nothing set aside uh, to give to people for unexpected needs. If you are always running five minutes late whenever you drive somewhere, then you're never going to have time to stop and help somebody who's stranded on the side of the road. So if we give ourselves extra time, if we build room into our lives, we'll have room into which to welcome people, to show hospitality in simple ways. So instead of being overwhelmed by God's commands to hospitality and the scope, the magnitude of the needs around us. 
many times we just need to start right where we are. We don't need to add anything else to our schedule. We just need to start right where we are, showing hospitality to the people that we already come in contact with on a day-to-day basis. We need to practice hospitality and welcome in our current vocations and contexts before we start trying to end world hunger. So ask God to show you family or friends or neighbors or co-workers or classmates or teammates who are in need of hospitality or welcome. Because whatever you do to the least of these, you do to Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have welcomed us. That You humbled Yourself to become a servant, to serve us. You laid down Your life that we might have life. You gave of Yourself that we might be made rich. We thank You for Your generosity and Your hospitality, that You have welcomed us into Your family. We who were children of wrath, and objects of wrath, we thank you for your generous hospitality and ask, Lord, that you would teach us humility, that you would teach us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, but to extend your gracious hospitality to others, recognizing our own dependence upon your grace. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.